Well, I think it's really important for me not to do anything that's sentimental. I don't like sentimentality. I'll, I'll write a lot of emotion, but what I don't want is cheese on that. Thank you very much. I was always very much a peacemaker growing up. I was a sort of people pleaser and I, I hate conflict. I don't really like arguing with people. But there's something that happens in your late 40s or maybe earlier for some other people where you actually just start saying what you think and caring less about what's going to happen as a result. And that's been a really interesting development. I love to just scribble if I can't write which some days you just struggle with it then I'll I'll doodle and just try and come up with some other background stuff so I was the worst ball girl in the history of Queens kept putting my hand up at the wrong moment or scooting across the net at the wrong moment and in the end John McEnroe asked for me to be removed from the court because I was so bad it was distracting him Hi and welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And this is Phil Williams. And don't for a minute think that we were messing about before we started speaking to you, because we absolutely, <laughs> absolutely weren't, were we? You we just gave me the instruction of go. It's like, <laughs> my head is like, go where? Are you being rude? Like, I know that. Anyway, um, yeah, welcome to Bestsellers. Uh, we have got... <laughs> A brilliant episode for you today because we're chatting to Jojo Moyes, who we both adore. You know yeah. her better than I do, yeah. but I wish well, I knew slightly. her as well as you did. Um, so basically, I did a tour with her. I did a book tour with her in 2019 and did, now, where do we do? Liverpool, Manchester and Edinburgh. Edinburgh was phenomenal. The previous night, Ben Elton had played this venue <laughs> and then we were there. <laughs> uh, and it was great. Really, really good. And um, she's a natural raconteur. She's got a great intellect, a great wit. But you say I know her better than you. Um, mm. It becomes very clear in this podcast that I didn't know her as well as I thought because she'd had quite a tumultuous lockdown. She had. You hadn't read the Sunday Times uh, or Saturday Style article that I had before. Right, that. right, right, right. right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, there's a bit of personal news update from Jojo in this as well. Uh, but most importantly is just her talking about how she formulates what is a really clever um, comedy book, I think. It's a really clever comedy where that's packed with laughs and twists and um, you'll never guess the ending in a month of Sundays. And I just, do you, do you agree? Do you find, did you find it the same? Cause we haven't really yeah. talked about this, have we together? No. So the, the book is called someone else's shoes. And I think because Jojo Moyes is one of those authors who's so successful and is so well known now because of books like me before you and the movies that kind of have come with various of her stories as well. I think people, might have a preconceived notion of what each book is going to be like. Um, and I think you're wrong. <laughs> a lot of you, not all of you, obviously. Um, but I think sometimes that can be quite limiting to what people expect when they open a book. And every book I've read of hers, I found to be quite different, actually. And there's a common thread throughout her style of writing. There's a huge amount of warmth. Yeah, warmth exactly. But they're not all weepies, you know, they're not oh, all correct. really kind of mired in sadness, which I think is sometimes what people perhaps conceive they're going to get from a Jojo Moyes book, but it's not like that at all. Absolutely agree with all of that. So, Natalie, go. <laughs> You're going to do that again. <laughs> so, have a listen to what Jojo Moyes has to say um, just about life lessons and writing lessons and writing a really funny, brilliant, engaging story. And I hope you like it. Here's Jojo. 
Our guest on bestsellers today is in a very exclusive club because she's one of only a few returnees that we've had on the podcast. And she's sold so many books that she's lost count. So it's over 40 million and it might be closer to 50 million. We're in that <laughs> ballpark as we talk to Jojo Moyes today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me back. I obviously didn't disgrace myself last time. No, exactly. Exactly. I know it's the real testing. If you get my mum always said that. My mum always said, if your manners are good enough, you'd always get invited back. <laughs> well, thank you very much <laughs> for having me. <laughs> Someone else's shoes is why we're talking to Jojo. And so I reckon it's been has this been four years in the making? Uh three years. Yeah. Three years in the making. Yeah. Yeah. It's the longest gap I've ever had between books, but then a few things went on between the last one and this one. <laughs> you, you say that with a sense of trepidation. What nothing bad, right? Just kind of big films and stuff. Uh, no, no, it was, uh, I've had a kind of, yeah, no, I've had a time of it. Um, I got divorced after 22 years and my mum died. <laughs> so uh, that and a oh pandemic. My goodness. Uh, so there has been a lot. And I Jojo, I'm really sorry. I feel it. awful. No, I knew God. neither of those things. I don't know why no, I followed you on social. I don't know why I didn't. Well, I didn't that. talk about it on social. Oh, okay, I'm not right, really, okay. a, uh, I'm yeah. not an oversharer in public. Right, um, right. But yeah, so I think like a lot of people, I had a kind of quite a bumpy few years but that's why I wrote this book in a lot of ways I wanted to make something that was a bit lighter than usual well that yeah so it's almost like you're reading my mind here because um this is I'm going to call this a comedy I mean it's it's I say comedy drama really there's a a huge amount of heart in it and there's some there's some trauma in it but it's funny it's really funny and so to hear you say that you wanted to do that off the back of your own trauma was that is that even harder i mean i know you so i know you're a funny person mm. but is it harder to be funny on the page when you've gone through what you've gone through no i don't think so i think british people are really good at turning grief into humor um i mean if you speak to anyone in the emergency services they have all the best jokes and i honestly believe that you know we british people we're generally not great at discussing emotion but what we're really good is laughing at ourselves and uh i you know, during the pandemic, especially, I just felt like I couldn't watch anything too grim. I couldn't watch anything depressing or read anything depressing. So I found I kept seeking out things that made me laugh or took me out of myself for a couple of hours. And so in the end, when I started writing again, I decided I wanted to write something that I would want to read, which was just, um, as you say, comedy drama, something that might make people laugh a bit. I think that I'm going to misremember the quote, but um, Emma Thompson has a really good quote that's something about how comedy is actually kind of contains all of the emotions uh, the whole kind of gamut of everything because for something to be truly funny you've got to recognize the grief at the heart of some things it's kind of I couldn't agree more I absolutely agree that and I I just think I don't know it, it when you can laugh at something it puts it in its place it puts it in perspective and you know, the thing about grief is that there's always someone out there who's had it worse than you. There's always someone who can, you know, out grief you. So for me, it was just about reminding myself that, you know, there is kind of humor in everything, even the darkest moments. I mean, we have all sorts of really terrible family jokes about the worst moments in the last few years. And you just, you got to laugh. You got to laugh. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of early doors. Have you, have you heard of early doors? Craig Cashfield. I have heard of it. Yeah, and it's BBC4 every show you. And there's a really kind of quite dark but deliciously funny line in there from from one of the old regulars, Tommy. And the barman asks him if he's all right. And he says, yeah. Then he says, Charlie Taylor snuffed it. And he says, I see. He says, yeah. He says, 77 he was, and not once has he been to the seaside. And whilst that really (laughs) made me laugh, the darkness in it as well. (laughs) 
yeah um but i think that is peculiarly british i really do i think you know if you go to america you know listen to prince harry talk about his trauma it's very serious it's you know there's very little humor in it um how you can't laugh at a todger covered in elizabeth arden i don't know but to me <laughs> that's hilarious and yes. yeah i just i i'm definitely one of those people who you know i might be crying but even when i'm crying i'm thinking of something funny in the middle of it um i'm sure psychologists would have a field day but i think it's not a bad way to process sad things so can i introduce um our listener to some of these characters and then you can stop me if i go too far right okay so we meet sam first of all sam's 45 her husband's in depression uh a daughter cat describes phil the husband her cat's dad as being in standby mode the whole time which i really <laughs> resonated with can i just pause uh, you for a second there phil how did yeah. you feel reading a book where one of the characters has your name <gasps> I didn't realize that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, it's to be honest with you, Phil. <laughs> my ego is so out of control that I was instantly flattered by it. I thought, oh, bless her. She's had such fun with me on the last tour we did together. She's named a character after me. I'm so touched. And you then I realized in my subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> that the character was manically depressed and doesn't move off the sofa. And I thought, I mean, I love a sofa, but I'm hoping that I'm not on it that much. And I started saying to my wife, Am I on the sofa as much as Phil in this book? Uh, so yeah, he's he's in there. She's got a boss who uh, she doesn't like, who's mean to her. And that's one side of the story. Now, on the other side of the story is Nisha, who's been married for 18 years. Uh, all the trappings of wealth around her husband then hands her divorce papers via his own security staff. There's a mix-up mm -hmm. at the gym involving the title of the book, Someone Else's Shoes. And that's probably all you need to know, right, to get started in this. And then these lives intertwine. But the way you've done it is so clever. I wanted to ask you about plotting because it must have been a nightmare. It huh? was. I, I have to say there were more than one occasion where I wrote myself into a corner and had to spend a couple of weeks trying to work out how to get myself out of it. I mean, because... It is essentially a caper. It's an old fashioned caper with some twists and turns. And you do have to plan those really carefully. I mean, I'm, a, I'm in awe of writers who say that they can fly by the seat of their pants because I have to know where the twists are coming. And even then, uh, it was it was a difficult one to plot. Um, but it was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was it was like writing something from the 1940s or you know, or 50s, those sort of fast-moving, fast-talking um, stories that, you know, involve mix-ups and match-ups. Yeah. Well, it reminded me a little bit of, I mean, it's, I don't want people to get the wrong impression because there's no there's no violence in it, but it reminded mm. me a bit of true romance, you know, where, you know, it's Did building it? up to that. Yeah, because y y there's so many things that happen in that film mm. that build up to that big shootout at the end. Mm. And Jojo's book doesn't end in a big shootout, by the yes. way, just to put you straight on that. But what I mean is that, all the loose ends get tied up. And even at the very end, at two o'clock this morning when I finished it, I thought, oh, you've even took care of that. And, yeah. and so I now have no further questions. And that's really satisfying <laughs> as a reader. Is that important to you as a writer? Do you know we Definitely. feel like that? Well, if I read a book uh, and I invest my time and I invest my energy into kind of really going along with it, and then it has a weak ending, I get so angry, I want to throw it across the room. So for me, it's really important to, yeah, give the reader a satisfying ending. And that ending, as you say, has a double twist. So that just when you think the ends are tied up, something else happens. And when I worked out what that something was, I had such a jolt of pleasure because I knew how it was going to work. And also it's a it says something about everything that's happened in the book. And 
when you get moments like that, that's when the writing process is its most fun because it's your your subconscious is probably working stuff out for you and then suddenly it comes to you at 3 a.m. and you're like, yes, I can do this. It is a very satisfying ending. Um, I think it's really interesting actually, even just hearing the pair of you talking about the book to start with, because I have a hunch that obviously Jojo, you wrote this book, so this is all your mm. hard work. But I think that each of us might empathise with a different character or have a favourite different oh, character. Go on then, go on then, say who you did. Uh, so I, my favourite character I think is actually Sam. Right. Right. Yeah, it divides really cleanly into Sam and Nisha. And just for the... And Jasmine the as well. Yeah, Jasmine is Jasmine mm. is the best character of all of them, really. Well, I'm going to throw you all both a curveball. Oh, go on. So my favourite's Alex. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just oh. admired Alex's real calm, even-tempered stoicism about life. Clearly hasn't had the easiest of runs, so it's not like he's got nothing to be fraught about, yeah. but he's not fraught, and he recognises that food is the joy he can give to other people. So he's the chef so the, in the hotel, we should explain. Yeah, the first meeting between Nisha and Alex was the most fun scene to write because Nisha is a character who turns her anger outwards as opposed to Sam who internalizes everything and Nisha is in a hotel kitchen having a massive meltdown and at the end of this meltdown she looks up and sees Alex who's this short order chef watching and she's immediately on the defensive and aggressive about it like what do you want I'm sorry I'm going to tidy this stuff up and he just says I'm going to make you some food. Sit down. It's hard to be this angry when you've eaten food. And he's so calm. And she's never met anybody as calm and level as that. And she doesn't know what to do. And, and the most fun in that book was building their relationship with him being level and her going out of her mind because she doesn't know how to react to level. Yeah. And that was the bit that also stuck with me when I was reading it. And I tweeted you about this saying I just really wanted to have one of Alex's sandwiches. And I do now get, <laughs> I do now get to ask you, like, is there a hotel somewhere where you've had the most delicious sandwich? Um, no, but I did once get served uh, a salad, which sounds really unexciting in a hotel in Georgia on a place called Peachtree Avenue, which mm. makes it sound like the most gorgeous kind of Scarlet O'Hara type place, but it was actually a kind of multi-story. But I just remember this salad, it had a thing called butterhead lettuce and it was the most beautifully served, uh, delicious thing. I, I don't know why it was so delicious, but it just was. And it, it was something about the way the guy served it to me. And I just thought, Oh, it stayed with me. And I can't say there are many incidences in life where a salad has stayed with me, but it was, yeah, I think that kind of the effect that good food can have on you at a moment of crisis is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, my, my ex-husband always used to say to me, it's impossible to argue with you on a, on a full stomach. I am impossible to argue with on a full stomach. And yet I am a nightmare when I'm hangry. Mm. So um, I think, you know, a lot of marriages could probably be saved if someone just put a big plate of spaghetti bolognese in front of them before they spoke to each other. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're probably 100% right there. Would you like to read us a part of the book before we get too involved in discussing the, the plot line? Yes, I'm going to just read from the first page because it's so twisty, this book, that I'm anxious that I'm going to kind of introduce readers at the wrong point. So um, I'm just going to put a little torch on because it's quite dark in this room. Uh, but this is an introduction to Sam, who is the exact opposite to Nisha, who is angry and fearless and doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Sam is 
a British middle-aged mother of one who is squeezed by life in all sorts of ways. Sam stares up at the slowly lightening ceiling and practices her breathing like the doctor advised her as she tries to stop her 5am thoughts congealing into one enormous dark cloud above her head. In for six, hold for three, out for seven. I'm healthy, she recites silently. My family is healthy. The dog has stopped that weeing in the hall thing. There's food in the fridge and I still have a job. She slightly regrets putting in that still because the thought of her job makes her stomach clench again. In for six, hold for three, out for seven. Her parents are still alive, although admittedly it could be hard to justify including that in a mental gratitude diary. Oh, Jesus, her mother is going to make some pointed comment on Sunday about how they always visit Bill's mother, isn't she? It will come at some point between the small sherry and the overheavy pudding, as inevitable as death taxes in these random chin hairs. She imagines fending her off with a polite smile. Well, Mum, Nancy has just lost her husband of 50 years. She's a bit lonely just now. But you invited her all the time when she was still alive, didn't you? She hears her mother's response. Yes, but her husband was dying. Phil wanted to see his dad as much as possible before he shuffled off this mortal coil. We weren't having a bloody knees up. She realises she is having another imaginary argument with her mother and pulls it back. Lovely. Uh, and so you get a flavour there of not only um, the, the plotting, but also the, the type of humour. And the, it's really well observed, Jojo. I mean, one of the things I think it's really hard to do is to get those family stereotypes in, in a way that they're funny and they resonate with us without being feeling lazy or feeling like, oh, yeah, I've seen that in that show. Or I've read that in that book. I mean, I really think that's a really difficult thing for a writer. How did you achieve it? I think I just think about that exact thing when I'm writing. It's, you know, with, with Sam's parents, I could have made them kind of George and Mildred suburban you know, parents. But what I thought would be more interesting is actually they are kind of former eco-activists who uh, go on and on about sort of socialism and the evils of, you know, the capitalist society, but then expect Sam to be their unpaid cleaner. Um, and uh, just teetering on that cusp of not quite being able to look after themselves. So it's it's exactly that, just trying to think, OK, what what's the stereotype here and how can I go beyond it? I also really like, as you just read in that passage there, the imaginary arguments that we have <laughs> with people. The yeah, whole yeah, time. yeah. Me too, Nat. Me too. That you have in I your mind them, that don't actually yeah, happen. And... Yeah. I call them shower. Go on, Jojo. What do you call them? I usually, I usually have them in the shower. Um, you know, I, I'm washing my hair and thinking of everything. And I think the French have some expression, and I can't remember it in French, but there is a, a response called the stair response, which is the thing that you remember only after you've exited the argument and headed down the stairs. And I think, I wish I could remember the actual term for it because I get that all the time, like four hours later, suddenly remembering what I should have said. So it's the imaginary argument and the uh, failed response. <laughs> yeah, it's done incredibly well. Um, just to kind of talk about the character of Sam for a little bit, because I, I think the thing that mm. I found so empathetic and relatable about her especially was at this point in her life um her seemingly lack of confidence in herself which I think I've suffered from definitely over the years and I know loads mm. of people do but why did you really want to kind of tap into that at this time I think um I I occupy a strange space in the on one level, I am now a middle-aged woman. I can't deny it. I'm 53 years old. Uh, but also, I've achieved kind of career success since I became middle-aged. So on one level, I completely identify with that thing of, oh, my goodness, I'm becoming invisible. 
and I don't feel as confident in how I look when I look in the mirror as I used to. But at the same time, I've probably got more confidence than I did when I was 30, just because of where my career's taken me. And that gives you a kind of inner steel that you might not have had without it. Um, so I guess I felt like in writing those two women, I got to kind of explore two sides of something that I see around me and experience quite a lot. Do you get a sense that that's something that people are going to respond quite a lot to? Because they might have done that already in your previous works. The things that preoccupy me and my friends and what we talk about are a lot of the themes that come up in the book. Everything from, you know, I don't know, random chin hairs to being invisible to being bypassed at works once you get to a certain age. Um, But at the same time, I really loved writing Misha, who doesn't care what anybody thinks about her and is kind of furious. I mean, that was the other thing that surprised me about getting to this age is how angry uh, a lot of women get. Of course, I'm not including myself in this. (laughs) Um, But you suddenly realise there's quite a lot to be angry about. Um, And I was always very much a peacemaker um, growing up. I was a sort of people pleaser and I, I hate conflict. I don't really like arguing with people. But there's something that happens in your late 40s or maybe earlier for some other people where you actually just start saying what you think and caring less about what's going to happen as a result. And that's been a really interesting development to to kind of just sometimes say, no, that's not okay. Or no, I'm not doing that. And, and not worrying whether the sky is going to fall in if you don't do that. Can I read a quote that relates to what we're talking about? Um, okay. There's no spoiler involved in this, about 100 pages, and I won't offer any context. I'll just read the sentence. Sometimes Sam feels she's been so conditioned to be useful every minute of every day that there is almost nothing she does in which she is not simultaneously keeping her subconscious tally. Do men hear this constant inner voice telling them constantly to strive to be better, to be productive, to be useful? So as the only man here, I'll say yes, but I'm not speaking for all men, but I don't think okay. that's uniquely female. What do you think, Nat? I don't know. Uh, I think there is like a kind of it's really hard to do like sweeping generalizations right um certainly when it comes to gender but don't let that stop you <laughs> I know right <laughs> but um I think the thing that I find sort of sort of on a similar thing but is yes that tally of doing everything and the kind of mental checklist that you have the whole time and worrying about I'm similar I'm kind of always like the diplomat in my family and we'll try and kind of you know smooth everything and it's it gets quite burdensome sometimes well quite a lot of the time um but you're the, the diplomat in this podcast <laughs> but the the thing that is I guess kind of runs parallel to that I would say is that which is where I kind of also related a bit to Nisha is that if you so I'm how old am I 40 how old do we feel we're the same age 48, 48. Um, I love that when you get to that age, you lose track. It's only what year I was born, but yeah, not a clue. Um, Is that sometimes the responses come with the weight of age. And by that, I mean that sometimes I'll snap at somebody who I don't deserve to snap at, but that's because they're the hundredth person that has like said something slightly demeaning or been a bit flippant. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I've had it (laughs) like enough. So you're the person that gets it, which is unfair. I think, I mean, I think that thing about, productive time that is definitely from me um for years I have found it really hard to relax and to switch off um my both my parents had a kind of fierce work ethic and I think if you grow up watching that you can't help but absorb it so I was always working or if I wasn't I was sort of doing something to keep fit or doing something around the house 
Um, and it's been Jojo, don't you think also that's to do with your choice of job as well, though? Didn't you write for print before? And what I was getting at is, haven't you always been in deadline-driven worlds? I mean, Natalie and I discussed this. Our deadlines sometimes are by the hour. Yes, and you never miss them because you can't miss them. There, there isn't actually a choice. So yes, you definitely grow up with that idea that work is everything and that comes first. But in terms of, yeah, I, I think I hadn't realised until I kind of was forced to slow down how hard I pushed myself in every single area, you know, improve yourself, do better. Um, mm -hmm. There is a constant narrative, be useful at all times. It's only, I would say, in the last three years that I've learned to literally switch off and take lunch breaks and walk the dogs for longer and do all those things that just are generally good for you um, and not necessarily productive. But even then, I, I'm monitoring my steps when I'm doing a dog walk, so I probably haven't succeeded yet. But don't we think that's a double-edged sword? I, I think it is. You know, that I think the, the positive side of that coin for you, Jojo, is if you didn't have that drive, you wouldn't have shifted 50 million books. That's true, but I don't think it's necessarily good for your health. Yeah. Uh, that's what I've learned since, you know, I, I in 2019 with everything else that was going on. And well, in fact, the, the tour that you saw me on uh, at the end of that, I slightly fell apart at the seams, just too many countries, too oh. much time working. And I hadn't realized really how depleted that was going to leave me because if it's a job you love, you don't realize that there is a cost, you know, and you mm. must get this. Mm. Any freelancer gets it. If you love what you do, you can't see a reason to switch off um, because you feel privileged to do it. But actually, even doing the thing that you love has the capacity to kind of drive you into a, you know, a rut. And yeah, I hit my rut in 2019. I feel awful knowing that, you know. But then the dates we did together were probably at the beginning of that tour, weren't they? They were at the beginning, yeah. By the end, I was sort of held together by dry shampoo and bits of makeup. I mean, it was... <laughs> but you know, my... Um, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but my overwhelming feeling, having never met you properly before, I think once in a studio, having mm. spent a few dates with you on that tour, my impression of you was of a, a really um, inspirational, successful figure who had a great infrastructure. I remember in, in Edinburgh, we met Jenny Colgan. And then yeah. my flight got delayed the day after and you were all whizzing back to London and I couldn't get out of Edinburgh airport. And Jenny messaged me, having only known her through you the night before, I went, yeah. I'll come and sit with you at the airport, we'll have lunch together. And I'm like, wow, Jojo is not only lovely herself, she's got some lovely people in her life. And I thought you were just so sorted. Isn't it funny? That that was my view uh, from well, afar. On that, on that level, I am completely sorted. I mean, there is no coincidence that this book is about the solidarity and friendship uh, of women and, well, you and men, um, it is all about how if you pick good people, you will be supported by them and they will support you and you will support them. It is just, I could not have got through the last three years without my friends. I am so immensely grateful for them that I get teary talking about them because, you know, the older I get, the more I realize how important those people are. Your chosen family, not just your your biological family. Um, and I'm just immensely lucky with mine. I mean, I've been friends with Jenny over 20 years now, and there's a whole bunch of other writers who we are friends with. And we, oh God, such a corny phrase, but we lift each other up every single day. And, and you can't put a price on that. That's just, you know, that's better than any antidepressant. Can I do a, one quote on this, Nat? Do, just yeah. before we leave this theme alone, because it just fits with what we've been talking about. Um, again, quite early on in the book, I'll offer no context, although it doesn't really, you, it works in isolation. 
Nisha is not big on female friends. School had left her with a deep distrust of the subtly volatile dynamics that form when girls get together. Female friendships were febrile, prone to little explosions, frequently leaving you feeling like the ground was shifting under your feet in ways you couldn't quite fathom. So I wanted to ask you both as women what your experiences are of forming friendship groups, because my wife's got a really solid bunch of female mm. friends that she's known since she was six or seven but i say to her i think that's quite rare and that i think girls are more likely to fall out than boys and i think if boys fall out they go what have you done that for you prick no you're a prick should we get a pint yeah we'll get a pint and it's done but girls tend to i don't know again we oh, jump generalizing but they seems to harbor and fester is that fair um <laughs> you can go first jojo <laughs> yeah i think it is fair i think it took me a I mean, I, I I was an only child till I was 20. And so I think I understood the importance of friendship and how to cultivate friendships really early on, because I didn't have brothers or sisters to kind of depend on in that way. Um, but I would say in my 20s, I probably hung out with some people who I didn't realize were maybe not always acting in my best interest. I think it takes you a while to understand whether someone is good for you and they, you know, you might just not be a good match or there might be a kind of competitiveness or they might have their own issues going on that don't coalesce with yours. But what I found definitely in the last 20 years is that once you know your people and you can recognize them pretty early, um, it's like that glint of recognition where you go, Oh, you're my tribe. I get you. And it's such a joy that meeting of minds, that that chosen family, when you just get together with people who you know you have got your back. And, you know, there's a scene in it where Nisha calls on someone who she thought she'd fallen out with and hadn't spoken to for over 10 years, who immediately has her back and says, I'm, I'm there, I'm going to sort this for you. And that's my experience with a lot of my really good long-standing friendships, which is we might not speak for a year or two, and then you can pick up a phone and you're exactly where you left off. And and yeah, it, but I also think you have to nurture those things. You have to be a good person, look out for them when they're having a tough time, check in with a text message once in a while. Don't necessarily be offended if you don't get a response. All those things I feel like I've learned over the years how to be a better friend. Yeah, I think I'd similarly say, so again, I don't want to kind of give away plot things, but that mm. point in the book where there is like an old friend that gets called upon, I'd say from my experience, um, I've got quite a few of those of people who I really don't see very often at all, but there were friendships that were formed at school maybe, or like early on in work. Mm. And actually, I think the, I think COVID was interesting for going, you know what, why don't I see those people more? Cause those are exactly the sort of people where if something really bad had happened, I could just phone them up and go, be totally honest, not have to do mm. any of the kind of social niceties about how are you? And I can't bear that anyway. Like I'm kind of, <laughs> Well, I well, I generally find, talk, yeah. yeah. I find like the older you get, I just can't be bothered with. Um, and this is going to make me sound really shit, I think, but I can't be bothered with like <laughs> insignificant conversations. Like, yes, yeah. okay, fine. Sometimes you do want to like say, "Oh, look at the weather" or whatever. But most of the time, if I'm meeting up with people, I want to talk about the really meaty stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. I, you know, I I don't want to talk about kids' uniforms or like you know <laughs> what color your curtains are yeah <laughs> really don't care there's a good um, line you can have that from a, from a mate of mine if he's in say you know when you get invited to a do and you get collared by someone who's a bit dull and as they start telling you something when they finish you just go oh really me neither and then you can walk <laughs> off 
<laughs> I had good. a great I had a great thing on a podcast the other day. Uh, it, they're called M4 friendships, where you could be driving down the M4, which has all manner of lovely things at the end of it, and you, perhaps you're going away for a weekend where you've got some nice things planned, and a friend calls and says. I'm having a, a nightmare. Please, can you come and help? And you just turn the car around at the next junction without even oh, thinking about nice. it. And I thought, that's it. I'm really yeah. lucky. I've, I've been blessed with my M4 friendships. Yeah, definitely. And, also, and you know, all credit to you. Then that's not easy to write either without it seeming seemingly cheesy or, um, the, you know, there's real depth, I think, to how you portray those friendships so I, I wonder how fully formed they were I know you said you had to like really plot this book mm. um but how did those relationships kind of grow and cement as you were writing them well I think it's really important for me not to do anything that's sentimental I don't like sentimentality I'll, I'll write a lot of emotion but what I don't want is cheese on that <laughs> thank you very much so um what I enjoyed writing in those female friendships so for example there's one scene where you know, a character gets the all clear from a serious illness and she, the other person immediately, her best friend starts insulting her and saying, you know, I can't believe you put me through that. And she's like, I know I'm such a dick or whatever she says. And that's the way me and my friends talk to each other. You know, you, you could have just had a scene where they hugged and said, oh my God, I love you so much. I don't know what I would have done without you. But what is more realistic for me is one of them goes, you know, you're so selfish. I can't believe you got <laughs> cancer. How dare you put me through that? It's that black humor again. You know, it's that that thing. And also it was important to show me, for me to show women getting irritated with each other. You know, there's one scene where Nisha uses up all the hot water and leaves nothing for supper. And Jasmine, who she's living with, just loses her top, you know, blows her top at her and just says, you can't you can't do this and in Nisha's world that means the friendship is over so she gets ready to pack her bags and then Jasmine says to her 10 minutes later oh my god don't be dramatic about it I've got to be able to let off you know my steam if you irritate me um and to me that's more real that's more interesting than those kind of all or nothing you know saccharine depictions of friendship which it, it just doesn't feel realistic to me. Yeah. So are those characters, uh, have you got all storyboards for them? I mean, do you, how do you do it, Jojo? Do you create separate sheets for each one? Does each one yeah. have a soundtrack in your mind? Oh, I haven't done soundtracks. That's a nice idea. But I always have a, a kind of uh, a breakdown of each character before I start, where they come from, what's their background, what's what were their parents like, what food do they like, what music might they listen to, Um you know, I think I've talked to you before, Phil, about the kick the dog test where you have a character walk down the road and see somebody kicking a dog. How do they react? Do they steam in and kick the person? Do they kick the dog? Do they not intervene and then feel really guilty about it afterwards? What's in their fridge? All those things I, I want to know about a character before I start writing, because otherwise when the characters meet each other, nothing interesting happens. You have to know what their strengths and weaknesses are and what their views are. What do they want? I mean, all those things are really important to me. So yeah, I, I have a, I usually buy a nice book and then I handwrite all those things before I start until I've got a more 3D picture of each character. So is that what you've got on a bookshelf somewhere, all those nice yeah. character books? Oh. Yeah, yeah, not just characters. I mean, I also sort of, I often plan out chapters or just do doodles. I do a lot of doodling things that I you know 
an image of somebody. Um, I'm not a big picture builder. I don't do mood boards and things like that, which I know some writers do, but I love to just scribble. If I can't write, which some days you just struggle with it, then I'll I'll doodle and just try and come up with some other background stuff. And can I ask a bit about going back to sort of when you were first starting to write? Because mm. again, I was reading how <laughs> your first three books, I believe it was, didn't sell. Um, no, they were rejected. They didn't even get published. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, didn't sell to a publisher. How you moved on from that and kept kept your own confidence in your writing and, and who lifted you up at that time? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think I lifted myself up. Uh, I mean, my husband, he he believed in me, but he wasn't big on fiction, let alone, you know, commercial fiction. So I think I'm just really bloody minded. It's like I, if I can't see a reason why I can't do something, then I'll just do it. I mean, I've laid a floor in my house before now with joists and everything because there wasn't a carpenter available to do it before Christmas. And I, I'd had a leak and I couldn't get through Christmas without a floor. So I thought, I'll do it. How hard can it be? <laughs> Turns out really hard. Um, <laughs> so, but I did lay the floor and the new floor joist with coach bolts and everything. Um, yeah, so I'm one of these people that I will probably say yes to doing something before I can think of a million reasons why I shouldn't. And with the writing, I just, I don't know. I can't not write. I have yeah. to write. It's just that's how I make sense of the world. That's how I translate everything is in writing. And and I do find that if I'm not writing, I'm definitely a scratchier person to be around. Yeah, hi. <laughs> that's kind of me. <laughs> I think that's me right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've just got one more on the um, on the female friendship vibe, yeah. uh, which I wanted to ask you, which is um, an interesting quote that um, Nisha makes towards the end of the book where she's – she's kind of not quite towards the end but something good happens to her that she hadn't expected and she says for the first time in her life she glimpses the solidarity of women and she likes it how many women do you think have never tasted that and got to 40 or 45 or 50 and never had that Georgia? i've got no idea i mean i i don't think it can be many but i remember in my 20s meeting loads of women who would say things like i'm not really a, a girl's girl I prefer men. And I don't know whether that's a sort of performative thing or whether a bit like Nisha in her early days, she they just find female friendships too complex. I have to say, pretty much every woman I meet at this age, and I'm I'm now in my early 50s, absolutely depends on the solidarity of other women. I mean, you know, we were talking, you, you mentioned, Natalie, the way that women just get stuck straight into the important stuff at yes. this age. I went to a, a dinner party with a bunch of women I didn't know last Friday, and I was a little bit intimidated because some of them were quite high powered. Within minutes, each of us was straight into the kind of meat and bone of it. Everybody was on, you know, difficult parents or marriages in trouble or, you know, just health issues. But, you know, there were people showing their bras and oh, it was just amazing. It was just like, there's no competition. There's no status kind of thing involved. Women, everybody at this age has survived something. I think once you get to your forties, pretty much everybody is the survivor of something, whether it's, you know, pregnancy loss, parental loss, divorce, you know, there's a multitude of things mm. that you could have survived. 
but I feel like by this age we're all a bit kinder to each other we're we just recognize that everyone's been through it and especially after the last few years and I, I find that like you say I've got no time for small talk it's just it's just a lovely empathetic thing I'm sorry while I'm talking to you my cat has got a paper bag stuck on his head and I'm just going to remove it <laughs> <laughs> the cat's having a tricky time he's just jumped up on the bed climbed into my lunch uh bag and then was just looking really perplexed with a bag on his head so um yeah anyway he's out now sorry about that <laughs> oh i want to see the cat now okay i'm just gonna can you oh, see him yeah lovely tabby oh yeah yeah um he was after my yogurt pot so that's what that was about yeah we have cats at the moment that are like um i'm on the oats milk vibe but it doesn't matter any any kind of whatever milk you have on your cereal the cats will literally like try and bash your head out of the way to like drink it from your bowl even before you finish (laughs) carnage i've got one very random question that i want to ask okay so do you want to do have you got any more on the book before i do because this is nothing to do with the book no 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 go for it okay a mate of mine right i said i said i was interviewing you and he said oh you know the john McEnroe story do you I said, no, I don't know the John McEnroe story. He said, ask her about John McEnroe. I said, really? And I thought like I knew most things about you, Jojo. Now this interview is revealing I don't. Um, Okay, so this is something that I'd managed to wipe from my memory bank for about 30 years. But when I was a schoolgirl, I was part of a group that got asked to ball girl at Queen's Tennis Club um, for... Is it, is it like whatever t- tournament, the big tournament they have? Yeah, it's the, it's the precursor to Wimbledon. That's it, the precursor to Wimbledon. And by some chance, I ended up um, ball girling for McEnroe. The problem was I'm really bad at sports and I didn't remember the rules. So I was the worst ball girl in the history of Queens. Kept putting my hand up at the wrong moment or scooting across the net at the wrong moment. And in the end... John McEnroe asked for me to be removed from the court because I was so bad it was distracting him. So I am probably the only ball girl he's ever asked to leave a match. And have you met him <laughs> since? Have you passed crossed again? No, no, never. I'm not sure he'll remember, but I, I certainly remember it. I don't even remember being <laughs> humiliated. I just remember being really relieved that I was being asked to go because it, it was it was that kind of nightmare thing of just being in a public space totally out of your depth, not having a clue what you're doing. I don't really know how I ended up there, but there you go. <laughs> I feel like you need to write that as well into some some story somewhere if it hasn't appeared already, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, one of my many, you know, humiliating episodes, they pop up into the subconscious here and there. Is there anything, I mean, obviously you've had so much upheaval over the last few years. Is there anything that you are scared to write about that you haven't managed to get out of your brain yet? Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, I feel like on one level, I've led a really, really interesting life. And yet everyone I know who's ever written a memoir has lost friends and family as a result of doing it. So I think the one thing I couldn't write about is myself. Um, I couldn't honestly hold a microscope up to the various relationships and things in my life. And also I have such mixed feelings about memoir because it's not always your story to tell. You know, Mm. whatever you tell is going to be through the prism of your memory and your emotions and it may not reflect well on somebody else in a way that might actually be unfair. So although I often think, oh, God, I'd love to write about that, I, I never will, I don't think. Do you know, at the beginning, um, before we started talking to you on bestsellers, we are having a little pre-chat, 
Yeah. And Jojo was mentioning that this is, um, you know, a different book to um, The Giver of Stars that we we did last time. But mm. I think there is commonality to it. I think the commonality is the heart. And I think that having read five or six of your books now, they're always full of heart. And that's why I think I love them so much, because um, that it's the heart that cheers up the reader. So regardless of the fact that this is comedy and the last one was not funny, there were some mm. funny moments in it. There were some funny lines in it. There's heart in it. And I think through that warmth, that's how you, that's the thread of your work. If someone said to me, what does Jojo Moyes write? I would say warmth. Oh, do you know what? That's, I think, the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me about my work. Thank you. <laughs> um, all I can say is that I have to feel it to write it. I just, you know, I feel it's so obvious when you read something where someone is either, you know, trying to second guess a market or copycat something else that's already been out there. Or I just, I think if it doesn't come from something really deep, I mean, Marion Keys to me, she's all heart. When you read mm, her stuff, you feel everything that her characters go through. And when you meet Marion in person, she is that person. And, and, you know, it goes back to that thing we were saying earlier on about having a layer of skin missing. I think a lot of novelists do have a layer of skin missing. We feel things kind of very deeply, and that's maybe we're natural empaths or something, but that's why we're able to suck in all that stuff like a sponge and then spill it out again onto a page. But all I can say is that I'm glad you think that because I have to feel it to write it, and it's the times when I don't feel it that the books don't work, and that's when I give up um and try something else uh, but do you, do you to up, do that do you end up well, crying loads at the keyboard uh at least once a book and if i don't there's something wrong because if i'm not crying you're not going to cry or you're not going to you know get a lump in your throat so yeah there's definitely i have to feel it although it's a bit crap when you're making yourself laugh by yourself at your own jokes <laughs> that's probably more embarrassing i don't know that's how i make a living i'm sat in a room on my own playing records making myself laugh in between the records hoping someone else will laugh <laughs> someone has to feel right yeah. <laughs> um so just before we get to some recommendations for you of what else yep. you've been reading what else is percolating in your brain right now you don't have to obviously say what you're writing but if you got one to you on the go where's the kind of map of um okay well I I've been working for the last year and a half on a comedy drama with Sky uh with another writer which may or may not come off who knows but it's been really interesting learning how to write television comedy episodic comedy because I've never done that before and was um, that you did you approach them and say you wanted to yeah. do this yeah nice. um I, I yeah uh so it would be lovely if that comes away I know they're trying to get it cast but you know like all these things I'm very zen about anything to do with tv or, or film because things can take a decade you know you, you just don't know if they're going to come off at all um, and I've just started a new book which I'm not at the magic 20,000 mark yet so I don't know if it's going to come off but it'll be lovely if it does that's the kind of the cutoff where it, it sticks yeah it sticks or it doesn't it's terrifying um <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm never committed till I've done at least 20 to 30,000 words. And then I've got a load of those 20,000 starter books just left on a computer. Wow. Have you ever revisited those and just because maybe it wasn't the right time? No, because my brain has usually moved on to the next thing. But sometimes you have to get that far to realise that it has too many similarities to something else or the dynamics just aren't working in the way that you initially pictured. So, yeah, I never know till I'm kind of 
knee deep into it so what else have you been reading that you would like to recommend to people listening um well I'm currently reading a non-fiction book which I'm absolutely gripped by and it's called Conversations in Love by Natasha Lunn and it's basically she's interviewed all sorts of writers and psychotherapists about love in general whether it's sibling love parental love romantic love and it's just about what we look for how we respond to it just the the knots we get ourselves into but it's really there's lots of really wise people being interviewed in it and I'm just it's one of those books where you find yourself highlighting and folding corners um and my daughter coincidentally is reading it at the same time and she just said she was absolutely gripped as well so I think it's a good one if you just want to kind of examine a bit of self-examination that sounds terrible but you know conversations (laughs) on love is it yeah yeah got it Natasha Lunn yeah. yeah interesting what else oh i tell you what i absolutely loved which i didn't expect to love it's a book called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle zevin and it was recommended to me and it's about the creation of computer games and i thought well that's totally oh, not up yeah. my street but, but it's not about computer games it's about it's fiction but it's about creativity it's about friendship it's about power um and it's so fascinating and there, was, there is a, a an incredibly original death scene in it that had me crying like a baby and I've never read anything like it and I don't want to say anything more than that because it it should come as a surprise to the reader but in mm. terms of a book that I thought I would have nothing in common with and then was absolutely gripped by I highly recommend it I think yeah, it's already I've... been optioned, and I'm not surprised because it's going to make an amazing film. Have you, Natalie, haven't you read it? You mentioned it to me, didn't you? No, well, I bought it last week, um, right. but I haven't read it yet. But I'm going to start reading it tonight now because, yeah, I, I, I'm just kind of dipping into a couple of non-fictions, and I was dipping into those Alan Rickman diaries as well, which were fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I'm going to go into that one on your recommendation. Thank you. Well, look, it's always a pleasure. That's, all, that's what I can say. It's always a pleasure, whether it's on Zoom, in person, wherever we are around the world. You're welcome here anytime, Jojo Moyes. And congratulations on this book. Someone else's shoes it's just superb it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you again thanks both of you i've, I've had a lovely time thanks Yay. thanks jojo <laughs> thank you take care guys the wonderful jojo moyes someone else's shoes i have two follow-up questions to ask you natalie jameson okay the first is after that chat which i know we both thoroughly enjoyed mm. will you be giving less of a shit <laughs> uh i just think in I... general in general, I aspire to give less of a shit. Right. And will you get there? Are you getting there? Is there a lighter load on those shoulders of yours? Uh, is there? Uh, I think there might be because I think I I think I am taking that on board a bit as I get a bit older. Yeah, I think so. Uh, from from certain people, not from everybody, but yeah, there's definitely like some situations. Whereas before, I'd like continue a relationship or a conversation that I really didn't want to be having. And now I think I just walk away. Good. Good. <laughs> Life's too short. And exactly. the second question I'm going to ask Natalie, mm. you might listening, you might say Phil, come on, it's 2023, but it's not sexist because she can ask me the same question and therefore it doesn't fulfill a sexism criteria. Right. The question is how many pairs of shoes do you own? Oh yeah. Not that many actually. Mm. Um, my kids would probably disagree because I definitely have the most in like a kind of shoe rack that's in the hallway. But um, in my defense, I'd say that's probably because I've got maybe three pairs of heels, but I just never wear them. I've gone through various stages in my work and career. Where I'm like, yes, I should look a certain way and I should wear yeah, these yeah, yeah, heels. Yeah. And I do like how they look on my feet. And 
you know, I get the whole like leg lengthening thing and I do like the look of um, high heeled shoes, but uh, I just like to walk too much. And I read, they're so uncomfortable. Like I don't have- They're impractical, aren't they? Yeah, they're just like, it just doesn't work. So I don't, I kind of give up on them now. Um, But I, how many pairs do I have? I'm going to guess it's probably like maybe like 12. But like in terms of shoes that I wear regularly, I'd say four. Right. And have you ever gone for a high end- no. Pair like the pair in the story. No, no, no same. The, I'd the rather buy a high end cake. <laughs> One of the many reasons we get on. <laughs> yeah. And what about you? How many pairs of shoes do you own, Phil? <laughs> um, so shoes is uh, one, two, just two shoes. What you define as kind of smart shoes. Oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm defining like shoes as all things I put on my feet. Well, I'm going to break it down for you because it gets better. Right? So, it's also smart, where you're going to remind shoes. people that you can buy us a coffee and this is the type <laughs> you buy of me a pair of trainers. Um, so two pairs of shoes and then, but trainers is my big obsession, mm. specifically Adidas trainers. Oh, really? I'm a Vans girl. Right. So the thing is, and then what I do is, because I've noticed with Adidas, probably the same with Vans, that um, if you don't buy them when they come out, that oh, I should mention at this point, Handily, I am a size 13. Oh, right? okay. And what's weird about that is that I wasn't always a size 13. Up until about 41, 42 years of age, I was a 12, right? And then suddenly my feet grew a size. And at first, I was trying these trainers on this shop. Yeah. And, was, and there's obviously this very young, trendy kid in there selling them to me. And I says, God, these are narrow, mate. And he said, oh, he said, they're the style, I'm afraid. Now, narrow trainers are in. Have you not noticed that in other shops? I said, no, not really. So then I went to Nike. Mm. I had the same experience, right? And I'm like... I said, are these narrow feet? He said, no, not really. So then he said, let's measure your feet. And then he went, you're in the wrong size, mate. These are a 12. I said, yeah, I'm a 12. No, you're not. He said, you're a 13. Amazing. Yeah. That wasn't my best training experience. My best training experience <laughs> at a shop in London, right? You'll love yeah. this. Uh, I went in just, I literally went in for a browse. I was 15 minutes early for a meeting. So I thought, oh, I'll just kill 15 minutes in here, right? So all these trains I liked, got them off the shelf, said to the young kid, got these in a 12, mate. It's obviously before my feet had grown, right? He said, I'll go out the back and have a look. And he's gone forever. He's, he's got like normally now they on a radio, aren't yeah. they? And, yeah, but he went out, comes back. He says, No, sorry, mate, we haven't got them in a 12. I said, Okay. I said, What about these ones? Found a second pair. He said, I'll go out the back and have a look. And he's gone ages again. I'm like, oh, oh, I really I shouldn't have done this. And he comes back. He said, I'm really sorry. He said, We haven't got these either. I said, I'll tell you what, three's a charm. I said, Try those. And then we'll have to leave. Yeah. And this time he's gone proper long time. And I'm looking at my watch going, Now I'm now I've gone from being early to so now I'm going to be yeah. late if I don't walk out. Mm. I don't want to walk out because it's rude, mm. right? And eventually he re-emerges and he says, oh, I'm sorry, mate. I've just been told out of the back we don't do 12s in anything. So we could have eliminated that right on pair one. <laughs> they just don't stop my size. Oh, and is that a common thing? Yeah, really common, yeah. In in men's trainers, a lot of them only go to 11. Oh. Yeah, really common, especially a lot of the trendier shops, you know, a lot of your mm. sports shops with initials by them and that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I don't think I've ever really cared that much about shoes, other than, like, they have to really – I don't want them to hurt my feet. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of, uh, as we were saying, this scintillating conversation, and we have just set up on uh, Kofi.com, which is where you can, if you've enjoyed this conversation, if you've enjoyed, I should say, Jojo Moises part in this conversation, <laughs> yeah. probably not us talking about feet. Less about, um, Unless that's your thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you realize as well, I'm going to have to go count how many pairs of shoes, and I'm probably going to be astounded that I've got more than a dozen. Um, but like flip flops, does that count? Anyway, shut up. <laughs> uh so Kofi, which is K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash bestsellers podcast. If you wanna buy us a metaphorical coffee. Do you know what's really good about that? What? It's worth the price of the coffee alone. And let me just let you in on this. <laughs> we record these over Zoom. 
<laughs> and as Natalie's trying to remember, co-fee.com slash bestsellers podcast, she's drawing it in the air with a chalk finger. <laughs> but we're on Sesame Street. Do you know what's even worse than that? I was trying to go, what is, I don't know, I'm going to, like, in the middle of, like, co and fee, there's a thing. Yeah. Is it a hyphen or is it an underscore? <laughs> I think it's a hyphen. Is hyphen the right word? <laughs> That's what my brain was doing whilst also going, like little images of shoes are flashing in the back of my head going trying to count those as well oh there's a lot in my head you don't you don't want to go inside there can you tell we're in dining of coffee if you'd like to buy us one we would love you very much for it co-fee.com slash bestsellers podcast and we will catch you next time with that's a good question spreadsheet of power oh yeah is that what it's called now spreadsheet of power the spreadsheet of power power power. <laughs> Ooh, it's really good it's curtis sittenfeld oh don't miss it <laughs> <laughs>